0: Light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking And Beyond Fireside Chats.
1: Welcome to And Beyond Fireside Chats. My name is Kasia, and today I'm talking to Toby Sinclair from And Beyond Asia. Welcome, Toby.
0: Thank you, Kasia, and it's fantastic to be with you.
1: Thank you for joining us. Topi, you've got quite a story to tell. You're one of those fascinating people who has a foot on at least one continent. Um, You were born in England. You ended up spending the vast majority of your life in in Asia, in India and in other countries thereabout. Um, And there's quite a story about how you got to be there. Could you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to explore Asia and how you ended up living there?
0: Yes, happily. It sort of goes back to my school days to an extent. I was, I'm sort of born in London and like many people of my ilk was sort of packed off to boarding school aged eight and uh, sort of crawled out uh, when I was 10 years later. And while I was at school, I was lucky to have a interesting library. um, And I used to find books about Cambodia and images of Angkor Watt, probably pre, from the 20s and 30s, because I was in, the, in school in England in the 60s and very early 70s. Um, so the books were probably pre-war. Anyway, okay. there was a fascination with this. And then I had an uncle of my father's who lived in the, the north of Scotland, who I used to go and stay with quite often, both as family and occasionally from the age of 16 on my own. And he was an ex-Indian Army officer who uh, didn't retire back to Scotland until 1955, uh, eight years after independence. And he had lots of fascinating stories about uh, joining up in the First World War, coming to India at the end of the First World War, and his service in India through the 20s, 30s, 40s and most of the way through the 50s. And he had a brother who actually lived on in India until 1961 um, as a civil engineer. So, although they were Scots, they gave them, they spent their lives more or less in India. So, I think that Mm -hmm. needed a few ideas and sort of inquisitive things. I also uh, Became very interested in Tibet and Tibetan more, but Tibetan history and Central Asian history. Um, probably from the age of 17 or 18, I left school in 18. Um, mm-hmm. And for a short while, I thought I wanted to study Tibetan history until I went to try and learn the language and realized that I wasn't just. <laughs> I was just never, ever going to manage everything. So after six weeks, I gave it up. Um, And I was working for a publishing house in London uh, and decided uh, that I was going to drive out to India and just take six months and see what happened. So I spent four months driving out to India.
1: You make that sound very simple, but I'm sure there were
0: quite a lot of adventures en route. Getting a visa for Afghanistan was my first example of bureaucracy, I suppose. Growing Uh up in England, you you live fairly isolated, fairly, um, in some respects, positive life. uh, And you don't really know about the realities of going to get things. Uh um, 46 years ago, this was 1974 and I was traveling. Yes. Um, driving to India from London only required one visa, and that was Afghanistan. So we, it was, so in some respects, quite simple, relatively simple. Um, mm-hmm. So I met up with four people uh, at Grosvenor Place, just near Victoria Station in London and we drove out together uh, with someone on the Mm -hmm. route before. So we drove through uh, sort of Belgium, Germany, Austria, and then into what was unified Yugoslavia uh, today, Mm -hmm. Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, um, and down to Greece, where we stopped for three days. Just north of Thessalonica, and uh, mm-hmm. that was great. And then our driver decided said that the best way of getting into Istanbul is to cross the border at night because the night is always quieter. You know, there's less traffic on the border, and it wasn't very far. I think driving time can't be more mm-hmm. than four hours, probably less. Um, yes. So we drove to the Turkish border from Greece, uh, from Thessalonica, and crossed. And as we were driving away from the border towards Istanbul, a lot of lights started going out in villages. And I think it was maybe 11 or 12 o'clock and at night, midnight by then. Um, and then we started meeting army convoys coming towards us. And then we started meeting tanks. And... <laughs> But we kept on driving. And this, they were going in the opposite direction. They were coming from They were coming from Istanbul. We were driving to Istanbul. And we went through the to Istanbul, and what we didn't know that that was the night that Turkey invaded Cyprus. <laughs> and we met the troops coming to protect the Turkish border against a Greek retaliation. And for the, food. And it's the only time in my life I have been in a city where I've actually seen or heard air-raid sirens going off. And it was rather like being in a World War II movie. We had three very, four, I think, nights. So three very good days, enjoyable days, exploring Istanbul. And from there, crossed over the Bosphorus and into Asia.
1: hmm and from there, what was what was your next point of um, of interest? Where did you head? I've to?
0: actually been very lucky. I've didn't, I've subsequently done this drive two other times. From uh, Istanbul, we drove up towards the Black Sea coast, and drove along the Black Sea, uh, the Turkish coast of the Black Sea, to a place called Trabizon and then inland, past Lake Van, around the base of Mount Ararat looking up carefully to try and see if we could find the, the ark stranded on a edge of snow <laughs> up on the side of the mountain. And then we crossed into Iran at Tabriz. Now, Turkey used to have very primitive roads going through the country in those days. They were, they were not, a lot of them were not tarmac. Um, but along the, along the Black Sea coast, there was a tarmac road, which is why our driver went that route Um, and on subsequent drives I've taken different routes through Turkey again during the Mm -hmm. 70s so I've been to some extraordinary places in Turkey Uh, and very very lucky and really my big regret about these journeys um, is that I didn't know what I know today In the sense I didn't know the questions Mm -hmm. to ask. I didn't know the places to go to. I didn't know Mm -hmm. the people to meet or who was more interesting than others. And crossing into, which was was up in the hill, in a hilly area, the border. So you drove on this dusty, unmade up road with lots of trucks that were going from Europe to Iran uh, through the center of Turkey. Uh, we rejoined that road and we crossed over and went down to Tabriz but there was a huge difference when you crossed from Turkey into Iran apart from the obvious time zone and stuff, you went from being from being a much more primitive country at that time to Mm -hmm. made up roads some cases motorways Um, Mm -hmm. Sparta cars smarter buildings because Iran had money and it was under the Shah in those days Uh, and was. but luckily the people I was traveling with uh, and our driver were very flexible about where we stopped and what we did we had a sort of idea Mm -hmm. of whether we were going to spend 40 days or 50 days wasn't too much of a problem It it was fairly loose and the other thing is that we saw something interesting like an old ruin Two or three miles from the road, we would go and look at it and explore it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, history has been one of my passions, always has been, and still very much is yes. uh, a passion. And my, when I used to take my son uh, on holidays in different parts of India, and we would clamber over old buildings and ruins. On one occasion,
2: mm-hmm. stamped
0: his feet and said, I am. Edda, crambling, crambling over old, old rocks. Why do we have to do this? Well, I was doing it himself. So something rubbed off, and I still enjoy doing it 45 years later.
1: <laughs> so it was quite a long and, and roundabout journey that took you into Asia. Um, when you did find... When did finally reach India? Where did you come into the country and what were your first impressions?
0: I crossed into India from Lahore to a town, and the first town I entered was a town called Amritsar, which is a town that I've been going back to quite often in the last four or five years because as and beyond and our touring operations in India have grown and developed. Amritsar um, has become a very important and fascinating destination for us. But that was the first place I, quote-unquote, landed uh, in 1974.
1: Well, it's, it's very clear that you remember that journey really, really clearly. And it's quite an amazing glimpse into, I think, places that have become very, very inaccessible and almost... Um, well, there's almost like very little interest in, in viewing those as tourism destinations or, or as places to explore in the modern day. So it sounds like an absolutely fascinating journey. Um, if I may ask, how long did it take you to get from from England to India on that route?
0: Uh, my first journey, I spent two months on the road. Um, and then I spent some time in India, Uh And then, unfortunately, I was, my plan was actually to travel, continue traveling east, uh, but I ended up Mm -hmm. getting ill and hepatitis. I probably got it in Afghanistan, but it really manifested Mm -hmm. itself about 10 days later when I was in India. Um, And after 10 days of pottering around uh, in India, northern India, uh, I did what any 20-year-old does in a, on a first trip abroad, I rang my parents. <laughs> and my father was a doctor, and he had an old school friend who happened to work for Air India, uh, be was the director of Air India in London. Uh, so somehow, I got a ticket back, and um, mm-hmm. I learned about insurance companies a lot after that, and how, what they do and don't pay for. Um, and travel insurance, I learned the hard way and I also learned how lessons, no doubt and I also learned how to solve a problem you end up by going to the mm-hmm. local library and looking up in a book called Who's Who and other directories uh, to find out who the chairman of your insurance company is and you write in the first book <laughs> by name and you go a, a week later there was a check in the post I got full, full settlement uh, but um, India was, I don't know what, I'd seen some photographs from this old uncle living in Scotland. I'd seen drawings, obviously. But India in August, which it was, it was hot. It was the end of the monsoon. Uh, I wasn't feeling very well. But I drove up to Srinagar in Kashmir, and then back down to from Sh- from Amritsa to Shunagar I drove back down to Delhi. And from Delhi, went to Agra, saw the Taj Mahal for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And then drove east and went to a town called Kanpur, And stayed in an old British house, which had been converted into a mm-hmm. hotel. It was rather nice house, lovely gardens, but a bit ramshackled. Um, yes. And... Um, and from there, I went on to Varanasi, Bar- which is also known as mm-hmm. Um But when I went back to Scotland and saw um, this old uncle, I right, showed him my photographs. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he saw, and I said, this is the picture, and uh, this is the hotel we stayed in in Kanpur And he said, oh, but that's Eddie's house. <laughs> and this is the sort of uh, serendipity of these journeys and these sort of things. There I was sitting in Scotland with my old uncle Hamish, who was then, I don't know, he must have been in his late 70s, and yes. showing him photographs of a house that he had stayed in in the 40s, where his brother, a guy someone called um had lived, built and lived. Yes. And there I was staying there as a impecunious twenty-year-old, uh, travelling on a budget.
1: Hmm. It certainly makes you feel as though there was a certain sort of uh, meant of an element that it was almost meant to be, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, there, there are those sorts of little links that happen, and things that crop up. And to be honest, I mean, they happen to many of us in our lives. Uh, it's just what is it the 6 degrees of separation that people talk about mm-hmm. but anyway from far enough see i went back to england and i was ill and I was in bed for weeks and then it was all sorted out and I went back to working for a publishing house
1: so what was it that ultimately drew you back to india i mean you kept coming back again and again and ultimately ended up living there what are some of the, of the things that, that kept you coming back? And what, well, what did you find were some of the beauties of living in India when you did eventually live there?
0: Um, the last question about the beauties of India, um, and I'm not trying to be too silly or clever when I say it's a combination of superb food and lovely women and cold beer. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's a good enough reason to stay anywhere. Um, it wasn't quite as simple as that, because it never is. Uh, when I went back to England, I worked for a publishing house called Jonathan Cape from uh, Bedford Square, mm-hmm. in Chateau and Windows, uh, in London. And um, I met someone, because uh, I was working on a river... expedition this shows you how varied my life has been. I was working on helping organize a river expedition down the Zaire River. It was done as a sort of group of scientists... Amateur hangers-on like myself, age twenty-one then, uh, and something called the Scientific Exploration Society, which was had a British military link to it, and in the sense that it was done as adventure training for soldiers. So we had office mm-hmm. in the basement of the Ministry of Defence, and I used to my office in Bloomsbury was only fifteen minutes away. So I used to pop down there at lunchtime. And I used to go there at 6 o'clock in the evening for a couple of hours in the evening to work on the Zaya planning. Um, mm-hmm. And I met there someone who'd come from Nepal. Uh, it was a character called John Blashford Snell, who ran the site. who was a colonel in the British Army, but he ran the Scientific Exploration Society uh, as a serving officer. And this friend of his from Nepal came down to visit us one day. And I was talking to him and he said, oh, you, you know, you know a little bit about Nepal and Kathmandu, why don't you, and just out of the blue, said, why don't you come and work with us? And this is a man called Jim Edwards, who was an extraordinary character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had, he was a Brit, who was in Nepal in the 60s, working for aid company organizations, and actually running a small hunting operation. Uh, yes. And... At the, after the Bangladesh war in 1971, Tiger Tops, which he subsequently owned, went, had gone bust. And he was in York. Mm-hmm. He went to see the owners, who were two Texans in Dallas, and said, you give me 50% of the equity, and I will take on the debt. And he took over Tiger Tops in 1972. And in 19- yes. end of, at the very end of 75, I met him. And in 1976, I joined him. And I went for six months to work on publicity and marketing because I worked for a publishing mm-hmm. house. He thought I knew about these things. I didn't tell him. I knew nothing about it. Uh, he was giving me a return ticket on Pan Am to go to Nepal, India and then up to Nepal. And he was me a place to stay for six, mu- for six months mm-hmm. and a small salary stipend. I thought, why not? And there course. I went. Uh mm-hmm. but six months later, I well actually eighteen months later, I was still there. And Jim yes. uh, and Tiger Tops, which he was then controlling and controlled, merged with a company called Mountain Travel, which is the original trekking organization in Nepal, and the parent or the from where the name came for the American travel company that we all know about today. Mm-hmm. But it originated in Kathmandu, run by an uh, yes. ex-British army officer called Jimmy Roberts, who was a Gurkha. Um, and for 20 years, Mountain Travel organized every climb on Everest and had an amazing reputation. So six months became 18 months, and in that time, I inevitably met some young girl, and we, she was moving down to Delhi, where she, because she had been trained in the port Kathmandu for the deck to work in the Delhi office, and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I'll come down to Delhi as well. And Jim transferred me to Delhi to the Mountain Travel office in India that we were setting up, mm-hmm. and in 1977 we started Mountain Travel India. We later started Tiger Tops India as well. Um, mm-hmm. I moved to Delhi. Just after the emergency, which is sort of one of India's bleak moments in uh, modern history in 1977, I moved on with Lakshmi thinking, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my life. I might as well see what I can do in India and let's see what happens.
1: It certainly sounds like an absolutely fantastic way to have lived your life and so many amazing opportunities. Um, Now, Toby, you've worked with wildlife a lot uh, for most of your life. Was it during that first time in Nepal that you actually got to see your first tiger? And can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: It was. uh, Jim owned this company called Tiger Tops, which had a lodge in Chitwan National Park. Mm -hmm. Actually inside the park. When Tiger Tops was established in the 60s, it was actually on, the, the, the lodge was built on the edge of a sanctuary. But the sanctuary was upgraded mm-hmm. to a park and the park was extended and included the land where the lodge was. And as the lodge mm-hmm. released, um the park sort of went around it. And we were allowed to continue to work in the, in the park. Uh, and Tiger Tops remained in the park probably until the, about 2000 and then all lodgings were closed inside the park and had to relocate outside. Um, or everywhere in South Asia, all accommodation today is outside uh, national parks. Uh, yes. But I, would, I was based in the Kathmandu office, and I was staying mm-hmm. with, as a paying guest, with someone called Dita Plaga, who was a, fil- a wildlife mm-hmm. cameraman who came working for a company called Survival in the UK, and he had just transferred moved there from East Africa, and so I was staying with him. But rather than take my weekends off or my day off, we had a, we worked a six day week mm-hmm. in those days. Rather than, uh, yes. I would accumulate my four week- monthly holidays, and I would go down mm-hmm. to the national park. I would go down to Chitwan. Mm-hmm. I worked with, uh, the person who ran the lodge was an American scientist called Dr. Charles McDougall, Chuck McDougall, who was, sadly he's no longer with us, one of the great authors Mm -hmm. on the tiger, wrote two extremely good books on the tiger over the years, and studied across South Asia. And I used to go out with him. And so whether we were riding, as we did in those days, riding on elephant back. Uh, we would occasionally see a tiger, but my first really memorable experience that I was walking, uh, along a ridge with Chuck behind the lodge. Uh, we'd gone up to a place mm-hmm. called Beltar and then walked along a ridge, and there was a gentle s- slope left and right, and we walked along the ridge top. It was all forested around us. And Chuck was walking in front, and I was 10, 12 feet behind, and he stopped. Mm-hmm. put out his hand, and he had been stopping and pointing things out to me, much of which I forgot by the following day. I um, slowly absorbed stuff over the years. Um, and he put his hand up, And then I looked beyond him, and walking towards us, in the opposite direction, was a tiger. And I was 23 years old. This was the first time I'd been on foot and seen a tiger. And what seemed like 15 minutes was probably no more than 20 seconds or 30 seconds, but it seemed like a hell of a long time. Uh, But it was a a magical moment. Uh, And it was about three in the afternoon, and Chuck and I went down, walked back down to the lodge. My heart was somewhere around my Adam's apple by then, pumping away. Um, And I remember going into the lodge and building and going up to the bar and drinking a quadruple rum at three o'clock in the afternoon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Certainly with good reason. Toby, I think perhaps unfairly, tigers are pretty much sort of seen as the iconic species for India. And people don't really talk much about, or well, never used to talk much about other wildlife species in India. Um, what are some of the other wildlife species that you've encountered while living in India and Asia? What are your favorite ones and, and maybe some of your favorite experiences or moments with those wildlife
0: species? Indian, the Indian landscape is vast and very, very, very mm. uh, yes. and the forests of, along the Nepal border is called the Tarai. Um, where Chitwan National Park is, in Nepal. Mm -hmm. Those forests stretch into India, and then a lot of the tree species that are there are found down into central India, just the middle of peninsular India. So the Indian landscape is vast and huge, and it ranges from high peaks of the Himalayas, you know, Kanchijunga is the third highest peak uh, in, in, in India, Everest is just is in Nepal, but just outside India, not very far, um, mm-hmm. and all the way down to great beaches and coral reefs and islands um, in the Indian Ocean. All part of India, and then of course mm-hmm. Asian countries such as Nepal and Bhutan and Sri Lanka uh, are all part of this great landscape. So I've been incredibly lucky. I've seen m- animals in the mountains and the dark, whether it's snow leopards and prey species like blue sheep and ibex and marmots, and, uh, and I have. Well, I spent most of my time working, visiting, filming, and guiding in the forests and parts of Central India, um, mm-hmm. and I think the. Species I get most excited about when I see it in the forest yes. is the dole, or the wild dog. They're in small packs. They're very, very different mm-hmm. from the African wild dog. Uh, mm-hmm. their morphology is different. Uh, Superficially, their biology is similar. But um, yep. they, the, the dole is the local name. Kipling, in the Jungle Book, refers to them as the, as the red dog. Um, they yes. are slightly fox like, um, but it's the Asiatic wild dog. And they're found throughout peninsular India, not in Sri Lanka, up in, across the Himalaya and across Asia up to the Korean Peninsula. But India is one of the last strongholds of them, uh, but they are very, very threatened. Um, and they are, by, I think, definitely my most favorite animal. I've been mm. incredibly lucky by the number of tigers I've seen in different parts of the country over many, many years. Uh, Leopards are also fascinating. But I always see the dole as a forgotten animal, an animal that Mm -hmm. deserves to be looked at and studied and watched. And to watch a pack of dole um, bring down a kill, to see them almost trotting through the woods, uh, a forest and then out into an open area. Um, to have them jumping out of grass next to you as you're driving along, which happened to me once, one monsoon when I was in central India, and hearing them call. And it's a sort of very light whistling noise. They never cease to fascinate me. So I suppose if I have a favourite animal, it would be a shattered wild dog or dog.
1: Toby, you painted an absolutely beautiful picture of them in words. Thank you very much. Toby, if you don't mind, I think we will end there for today. We'd like to chat a little bit more to you about your experiences in terms of filming wildlife documentaries and the projects that you've worked on in that. Um, And we'd like to speak to you again very soon.
0: I look forward to that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.